I need to make a quick correction. Joseph Smith's birthday is not December 27th, as I mentioned in the podcast on the martyrdom, section 135. It's actually December 23rd. I apologize for that. My daughter, Caitlin, let me know about that. Her husband, Rob, was actually baptized on December 23rd, Joseph Smith's birthday. So she quickly caught that error and gave me a a heads up. So I want to make sure that I'm correcting that. It isn't December, but it's the 23rd, not the 27th. Thanks, Caitlin, for that correction. Still a really nice thing to remember during our Christmas holiday celebrations. Hi, this is Lily Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Today, we're talking about sections 137 and 138. Can't believe how close we are to the end of this year's Come Follow Me studies. And of course, section 138 is the last section in the Doctrine and Covenants, and this was added many years after the first editions of the of the book of Doctrine and Covenants had been printed. This was received in 1918, so it's definitely something added on and put here together with section 137, which is a brief section that was given to Joseph Smith in January of 1836 in Kirtland. So these two sections are some 83 years apart, if I counted right. But they go well together because Joseph Smith in section 137, and let's take a look at this, just talks about how the heavens were opened unto us, and he beheld the celestial kingdom of God and the glory thereof. Wherefore, in the body or out, I cannot tell. Now, remember that phrase. And then in verse 2, I saw the transcendent beauty of the gate through which the heirs of that kingdom will enter, which was likened to circling flames of fire. You know, it's interesting because people think of hell as you know, flames and burning and whatever. And it's really the opposite because hell must be very cold because there's none of the glory of God there. But where God is, there are celestial burnings and everlasting burnings, which are completely able to be borne by the people who have prepared for that level of glory. So again, in verse three, also the blazing throne of God, whereon was seated the Father and the Son. And then the beautiful streets in verse four that have the appearance of being paved with gold. Verse 5, I saw Father Adam and Abraham and my father and mother, my brother Alvin, that has long since slept. Now, isn't that beautiful that he gets to see this glimpse of the celestial kingdom and he sees his father and his mother, who at the time of this vision are still alive, right? Joseph Smith Sr., Joseph's father, died in 1840, which was just four years before the martyrdom. And Lucy Mac Smith outlived her son, and died in 1856. So this is a preview of this vision of the celestial kingdom, seeing that his mother and father will be in celestial glory. And then he sees his brother Alvin. Now Alvin had died in 1823. So that was just a few years after Joseph Smith's first vision in the grove. And before he has been able to translate the Book of Mormon, before he has been able to organize the church. So Alvin didn't know about the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. He just knew that his brother had had this vision. And then he mentions in verse 6, this is Joseph the prophet, and marveled how it was that he, meaning Alvin, had obtained an inheritance in that kingdom, seeing that he had departed this life before the Lord had set his hand together Israel the second time and had not been baptized for the remission of sins. So how could he? Because baptism is required for entry into the celestial kingdom. And Joseph Smith well knew the order of the kingdom. He was the prophet of the restoration through which all these ordinances and covenants had been revealed so that we could be saved. And yet here comes the voice of the Lord telling him in verse 7, saying, all who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. So isn't that beautiful? And of course, it makes perfect sense because God is just. So if people didn't have an opportunity, and we know this, and we've talked about this with temple work and so on, that all men and women everywhere will have a chance, whoever lived on this planet or ever will live on this planet, will have a complete opportunity to accept or reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the ordinances will be done in the temple so that if they do accept those covenants and and accept the truth, then they can have access to saving ordinances. And then that I, the Lord, will judge, this is verse 9, all men according to their works. This is, again, the repeated repeated standard, right? I judge all people according to their works, good or bad as they are. So beautiful section here. And notice, 
And then he makes the detail too that those who die before they arrive at the years of accountability, which we say is eight, but I'm pretty sure God is going to be exact about that in each case, whatever that needs to be, that they are all saved in the celestial kingdom of heaven. And that doctrine is well known in the church. So this is tender for Joseph Smith because he loved his brother Alvin and had wondered, you know, what happens to Alvin? He was such a good person, such a good man, such an important member of their family, and yet had died before saving ordinances were available on the earth. And here is the answer. Now, this is why this goes so well with section 138, because section 138 came to Joseph F. Smith, who is the father of Joseph Fielding, remember, and the son of Hiram. Now, Joseph F. Smith was not the oldest child in his complete family because Hiram had had a first wife, Jerusha, who died and left, I think it was four children, I should check. But anyway, then he married Mary Fielding, and their oldest child was Joseph F. Smith. So Mary Fielding raised Hiram's other children until her death, which was pretty early, but after the saints had come west. And Joseph F. Smith was the first child of Hiram and Mary Fielding. He was only five years old when his father was martyred with his uncle, Joseph. And even prior to that, he had had some, you know, dangerous situations that had affected him. Once when he was just a baby, not even a year old, still nursing, I believe. And his aunt nursed him because Mary was so ill and weak from the deprivations that they'd been suffering right then and then bringing this child into the world that she wasn't able to nurse the baby. But Mercy, her sister, was able to come in and and nurse Joseph F. And anyway, the moms came one time and went through the house and moved everything and, and tried to take what they wanted. And after the moms left, Mary and Mercy were just trying to get their feet under them again and kind of settle down when they were like, well, what happened to the baby? And a mattress had been thrown on Joseph F. Smith as a baby. And he was sort of blue, they say, when they found him, but they were able to get him breathing again. So in his very early, early years, he suffered a lot of deprivation and hardship, first from the mobs, and then, of course, the things that were happening to his parents, and finally the loss of Hiram. Well, that wasn't the final test, but a big test in his life was that he never knew his father Hiram very well. Now, Joseph F. was very, very influenced by his mother, Mary Fielding, and she was a remarkable woman. I'm not going to go too much into that detail. I hope you look her up someday. But one of the things that he wrote later in his life was this. There is nothing so imperishable as the influence of the mother. So, okay, all you mothers out there, and even women without children who have the same capacity to mother the world, we need the nurturing influence of good women. So this is for all women to, to hear these words, because the influence of women is remarkable if, if done in righteousness. So going on, there's nothing so imperishable as the influence of the mother. That is when she is good and has the spirit of the gospel in her heart. And she has brought up her children in the way they should go. I can remember all the trials incident to our endeavors to move out with the camp of Israel. So this is after the death of his uncle and father coming to these valleys of the mountains without teams sufficient to draw our wagons and being without the means to get those teams necessary. She, meaning Mary Fielding, yoked up her cows and calves and tied two wagons together, and we started to come to Utah in this crude and helpless condition, and my mother said, the Lord will open the way. But how he would open the way, no one knew. I was a little boy then, and I drove team and did my share of the work. I remember coming upon her in her secret prayer to God to enable her to accomplish her work and her mission. Do you think that these things made an impression upon the mind? Do you think I can forget the example of my mother? No, her faith and example will ever be bright in my memory. Every breath I breathe, every feeling of my soul rises to God in thankfulness to him that my mother was a saint, that she was a woman of God, pure and faithful, and that she would suffer death rather than betray the trust committed to her. That is the spirit which imbued her and her children. Would not her children be unworthy of such a mother? Did they not hearken to and follow her example? Therefore, I say, God bless the mothers in Israel. Isn't that a beautiful tribute? And I said it before, I think all women are worthy of that kind of tribute and accolade if we are living in righteousness and seeking the spirit of the Lord so that we can influence those around us with our faith, with our trust, 
Now, when he started to drive team, he was not quite eight years old, which is remarkable. And, you know, I always got the dates a little bit wrong and I didn't always stop and look them up because we really didn't have Google back then or the internet when I was raising my children, or at least, you know, for most of those years. But anyway, I remembered that Joseph F. Smith had driven a team of oxen from very young ages. And I remembered that when I was raising my children because I thought, you know, sometimes we have have gotten pretty lax about expecting our children to be capable of things. And I've talked about this before, but remember that self-image comes from developing capacity and becoming competent. So competency and a positive self-image are inextricably linked. And yet, so often, we don't even give our kids very many jobs to do. And I recognize we don't live on the farm, most of us, so there aren't a lot of daily tasks that are, you know, like feed the chickens, you know, milk the cows, some really essential things that they have to be really responsible in. It's not the same as starting the dishwasher exactly, but it is important that we not underestimate the capacity of our children and, and their need to develop competency at different tasks. So it was a good reminder to me as a mother when my children were still young that like, well, you know, some amazing people and well, actually, almost all the people of previous generations had to work hard from the time they were able to do much, even if it was tending the small baby or gathering the eggs from the hens. So I, I think we have to make sure that we don't keep our expectations too low for the capacity of our children. Um, there's a balance in there. I'm not saying we're, we become Nazi parents and we make them do really, you know, terrible things unless there is a need. Certainly there was a need for Hiram Smith. Mary Fielding needed his help and the help of her other children as they were trying to leave Nauvoo and go with the saints to the Salt Lake Valley. So he drove that team from Montrose to Winter Quarters. And Montrose was over the river from Nauvoo. But from Montrose to Winter Quarters was 300 miles. And he was not quite eight years old. Just hold that thought when you're asking your children to do work. <laughs> they may say that they're not capable of it. They almost certainly are. His mother died when he was not yet 14. So even though the Mary feeling did get to the valley... And remember the story, the wagon master wasn't too pleased to have her in his company with her family because she was single, a widow, and he thought she was going to slow down the progress of the company. So he wasn't really all that pleasant with her or helpful from what I have read. And that's pretty amazing when you think that her husband was Hiram Smith and her and her brother-in-law was the prophet Joseph. You'd think the wagon master could have said, like, look, I got to help take care of, of this woman and her family. Anyway, his wheel broke down, the wagon master's wheel broke down shortly before they, they were ever able to enter the valley and Mary Fielding actually passed the wagon master's wagon and went into the Salt Lake Valley before he did. So there was a little poetic justice on that occasion. Anyway, but so Mary had died in the Salt Lake Valley, leaving Joseph not yet 14 and his sister Martha, who was still 11 years old. So these were young kids. Their father had been killed so many years ago and and here they're left without a mother they were attending school and joseph f was really protective of his sister martha so at this young age the schoolmaster got mad at martha for some infraction i don't know what it was the detail is not written but he took out his strap and he was going to smack her a couple of times and joseph f interfered and said if you're going to try to smack her you better deal with me and then in his own words, he recounted later that I licked him good and plenty. So he was, you know, not going to take this tamely. Now, however, this started to create some problems. And I mean, you know, honestly, psychologically, you can see how a young boy who had been through so much loss and, and now left to be, you know, the caregiver for himself and his younger sister and there were people in the in the valley who were helping. He spent time in the house of Brigham Young with some of the children of the prophet, but they really were kind of on their own. And Joseph F. Smith became known for having a bit of a temper, and he was getting into fights in Salt Lake. So Brigham Young sat with some of his brethren there and said, what are we going to do with this? This is the son of Hiram and the nephew of Joseph. We can't just let him turn into a ne'er-do-well. You know, I mean, he's, he's starting to cause trouble. So what are we going to do? And they sent him on a mission. <laughs> he was 15 when he embarked on this mission to Hawaii. His first mission was to serve in the Hawaiian Islands, which were then called the Sandwich Islands, of course. And he left at age 15. 
again, <laughs> you know, I know that there are troubles today, but we are capable of more than we think. The human creature was made anti-fragile. We've talked about this before, and we'll talk about it again, but let's just remember how much we're capable of, how much our children are capable of. So he has a bunch of difficult experiences. Sometimes his habitation in the Sandwich Islands is destroyed by flood, sometimes by fire. He gets sick shortly after he gets there and is bedridden for a time, but decides that that will be his time to study the Hawaiian language. And he learns and becomes very good at Hawaiian at this very young age and is able to translate later on as the brethren come and visit on occasion. But at any rate, he went through other times of sickness. He was nursed by a native woman that he started to call mama. And when he came back later, many, many years later, she was very old, but they there was a tender reunion between them. Anyway, he was often humble and sick and discouraged in his circumstances on the mission, but had a dream of his father and mother and of his uncle, the prophet Joseph, and some other leaders in the church who had passed on. And he wrote this about this dream. Now, this has been so touching to me. I hope you will be equally moved by this beautiful dream that Joseph F. Smith had in the Hawaiian Islands on his first mission. I was very much oppressed once on that mission. I was almost naked and entirely friendless, except the friendship of a poor, benighted, degraded people, <laughs> meaning they didn't have very many resources. There weren't too many resources amongst the island. I felt as if I was so debased in my condition of poverty, lack of intelligence and knowledge, just a boy, that I hardly dared look anyone in the face. While in that condition, I dreamed that I was on a journey and I was impressed that I ought to hurry, hurry with all my might for fear I might be too late. So he doesn't know exactly where he's going. But he has this feeling of urgency because he, he's afraid he might be late and he feels that this is important. Finally, I came to a wonderful mansion. I knew that was my destination. As I paused towards it, as fast as I could, I saw a notice, bath. I turned aside quickly and went into the bath and washed myself clean. I opened up this little bundle that I had and there was a pair of white, clean garments, a thing I had not seen for a long time. <laughs> that made me remember when our oldest son, Adam, came home from Guatemala and his mission there where literally his clothes had been like washed on rocks, you know, for two years. And we couldn't send things to Guatemala because they got stolen. We finally found a courier service that we could pay an enormous amount of money to deliver a couple of packages during the mission. but And that was a, a very select service, and I was really grateful for it, but we couldn't use it often because it was so expensive. So anyway, Adam came home, and I remember, you know, going through that first day he was home, let's go, you know, see what you've got to wear and, and get you some new things. And we were in Las Vegas, and I said, maybe we can start up at the temple at the distribution center so that we can get you some new garments. And he was pulling some garments out of his suitcase saying like, oh, well, some of these are still good. <laughs> looking at them and seams are separated and the collar is off. And, you know, anyway, the marks sometimes have been washed out and I'm like, you know, these aren't even regulation anymore. <laughs> let's, let's get you some new garments. So anyway, here's Joseph Smith and Joseph F. Smith who takes this bath and opens this little bundle that he happened to be carrying. And there is a pair of white, clean garments, something he hadn't seen for a long time. He goes on, I put them on. Then I rushed to what appeared to be a great opening or door. I knocked and the door opened, and the man who stood there was the prophet Joseph Smith. He looked at me a little reprovingly, and the first words he said, Joseph, you are late. <laughs> How would that feel? Yet I took confidence and said, yes, but I am clean. I am clean. He clasped my hand and drew me in, then closed the door. When I entered, I saw my father and Brigham and Heber and Willard and other good men I had known standing in a row. My mother was there, and I could name over as many as I remember of their names who sat there, who seemed to be among the chosen, among the exalted. When I awoke that morning, I was a man, although only a boy. There was not anything in the world that I feared. Now that's quite a statement. Going on that vision, that manifestation and witness that I enjoyed at that time has made me what I am. If I am anything that is good or clean or upright before the Lord, if there is anything good in me, that has helped me out in every trial and through every difficulty. End quote. I love this story. I heard it many, many years ago. I've never forgotten it. I've never forgotten it. I love the words he uses to tell of this tremendous dream or vision, both really, that he had in this difficult time in his life. 
that even though he was late, he was clean and that's what mattered. And that has strengthened him through every struggle or difficulty or trial in his life. How important is it to live a clean life? How essential it is. If we wish to be confident before God, we need to repent of our sins and change and grow and continue. Now, here's the man, Joseph F. Smith, who instituted family home evening for the church. Now, of course, it was years later that they started producing manuals and so on, kind of regularizing that and, and making it more supported program. But Joseph F. Smith was the first one, the first prophet who received revelation saying that this should be a designated night every week where the family gathers together to have you know, positive experience, learning the gospel, discussing the gospel, and, and in other wholesome activities and so on, including some wholesome recreational activities, but not neglecting the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at this statement that he makes. God forbid that there should be many of us so unwisely indulgent, so thoughtless, and so shallow in our affection for our children that we dare not check them in a wayward course in wrongdoing, and in their foolish love for the things of the world more than for the things of righteousness, for fear of offending them. Like, did you catch that? That was a long sentence. But heaven forbid, he's saying, that there should be so many of us that are unwisely indulgent, that are thoughtless and shallow in our affection for our children. And that is such an important phrase because, you know, we say we do it out of love sometimes, or parents will say that, well, I love them, so I'm not going to make them do their jobs, or I'm not going to insist on this, or I don't want to spoil their fun. But that is what he's saying is that's really a thoughtless and a foolish love. It's not true affection or, well, what does he say? Thoughtless and shallow in our affection that we dare not check them, meaning stop them, if they're going in a wayward course or they're involved in wrongdoing, or they're too attached to the things of the world more than to the things of righteousness, because we're afraid of offending them. And I do see that, brothers and sisters. I know parenting is hard. We're going to have a lot more material on this, but please remember the words of Joseph F. Smith. That is a shallow and thoughtless affection if we are not willing to offend them in stopping them from you know, going in paths of unrighteousness. It's not about being their best friend. It's not about being popular with our children. It's definitely we need to have to do what we can to establish good relationships. But true love means that we will actually stop them when they're going the wrong way, when they are under our stewardship still. Going on, I want to say this. Some people have grown to possess such unlimited confidence in their children. <laughs> These words are terrific, brothers and sisters, that they do not believe it possible for them to be led astray or to do wrong. The result is they turn them loose morning, noon, and night to attend all kinds of entertainment and amusement. Now, just think about this. He's saying this in 1909, and he's saying there are so many entertainments and amusements out there. Well, magnify that by about a zillion times, and here we are in 2021, where the distractions and the amusements and the entertainments that are available to our children are ubiquitous and, you know, omnipresent and constant. So he's saying even in their time, he said how, how sad it is that, that parents turn them loose to attend all these kinds of entertainments and amusements, often in company with those whom they know not, who they know not and do not understand. Some of our children are so innocent, they do not suspect evil, and therefore they are off their guard and are trapped into evil. I want to sound a note of warning to the Latter-day Saints. The time has come for them to look after their children. 1909. Every device possible to the understanding and ingenuity of cunning men is being used for the purpose of diverting our children from the faith of the gospel and from the love of the truth. Again, let's just repeat that, thinking of this in our day, but how amazing that he said this in 1909. Every device possible to the understanding and ingenuity of cunning men is being used for the purpose of diverting our children from the faith of the gospel and from the love of the truth. Our children can be led away from their parents and from the faith of the gospel only when they are in a condition that they know not the truth for themselves, not having had a proper example before them to impress it upon their minds. So if we don't teach them and we don't exemplify it, they're going to be in a condition where they're vulnerable to those cunning wiles of the adversary through through cunning men on this planet, men and women on this planet. I may be pardoned, since it is pretty well known everywhere, I believe, that I speak my mind if I speak it at all. Now, this is a tender statement he's making here. Hear it with an open heart, please. I would rather take one of my children to the grave than I would see him turn away from this gospel. 
I would rather follow their bodies to the cemetery and see them buried in innocence than I would see them corrupted by the ways of the world. Now, I have heard it said more recently that people say, well, that was pretty tough to death. And, and we're not saying that anymore. There's a kinder, gentler, you know, explanation of the gospel in our day than there was back there in those hard old Victorian days or whatever. And I don't think that that can be true. First of all, we don't improve in virtue from one generation to another. God gave the whole truth to Adam and Eve, and he gave it in every dispensation to his people. And he didn't sugarcoat it back then, or he didn't make it harsher then, and now he's easing up. Like, no, that doesn't make any sense. But again, look at what he's saying, that to have them lose their connection to the gospel would break his heart even more than losing a child to death. I don't think that's a harsh statement. I think it's a, it's a sober and beautiful expression of true parental love. He knows that it's not death that is the enemy. It's sin. God has provided a plan that because of the atonement of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, everyone will be resurrected. We will be reunited with our loved ones. But sin is the second death. And if it is not repented, then we lose our, our loved ones in a different way. And that's all he's saying. And that's, I, I think you would get Russell M. Nelson to, to agree to that statement today. And he would explain it tenderly, not with, with a lack of sensitivity to people who have lost children. Because, of course, that is a devastating loss. We usually say that it's very difficult to recover, if you can at all, from the loss of a child. We expect our children to bury us. We anticipate that we're going to have to bury our parents, but we don't want to have to bury our children. And to anyone who has lost a child, our hearts go out to you. That is, that is a, such a challenging trial to go through. And yet, what great promises we have for the loss of innocent children and even those who are older who have not fully had a chance to understand or accept the gospel, the Lord is kind. We don't need to worry about the compassion, the mercy that will be extended in, in a just way. Let me add here that Joseph Smith, Joseph F. Smith was not speaking casually about the loss of children. He had three wives. He had 48 children. And of those 48 children, he had buried 10 he knew what it was to lose a child. He was not saying this in a casual or careless way or without full understanding of what that meant. In fact, here is a tender story that he wrote about the loss of one of his children. At last I took her in my arms and walked the floor with her and helplessly, powerless to aid my darling dying child, I watched her feeble breath depart to come no more in time. And her glorious intelligence, her bright angelic spirit, took her flight to God from whence she came. Let me just interject that I am so grateful for the beauty of his language. Continuing, with her was swept away all our fond hope and love and joy of earth. Oh, how I loved that child. She was intelligent beyond her years, bright, loving, choice, and joyous, but she is gone to join the beauteous and glorious spirits of her brothers and sisters who have gone before. Sarah Ella, M. Josephine, Alfred, Heber, Rhoda, Albert, Robert, and John. Oh, my soul, I see my own sweet mother's arms extended, welcoming to her embrace the ransomed glorious spirit of my own sweet babe. Oh, my God, for this glorious vision, I thank thee. Look how beautiful that is, that even in his agony, he could envision his mother embracing his children that had gone before him to the other side and could feel their love. But now they had that joyous reunion. And here, Joseph F. and his family were left to mourn them. And there, too, are gathered in my father's mansion all my darling lovely ones, not in infantile helplessness, but in all the power and glory and majesty of sanctified spirits, full of intelligence, of joy and grace and truth, my darling little petling in her own bright home with those of her brothers and sisters who had preceded her. How blessed, how happy is she, how sorrowful are we. I think that's important to put in that context the statement that he makes that he, even with this agony of loss, that he well understood 10 children he buried. 
he still would rather lose them to the spirit world than to lose them to a second spiritual death. And he is in urging us as parents, and we, we know kids have agency, but he is urging parents to not be foolish, to not have shallow affection, to not be afraid of offending our children, to teach them the truth, to correct them in wrongdoing with a loving, kind hand. Again, we're not talking about being harsh or punitive, it's, although there may need to be consequences imposed, but we're talking about caring enough to teach them to give them responsibility, to help them become anti-fragile, to become strong and glorious in their potential. Maybe I should have explained this before, but I am a big fan of our Latter-day Prophets. When we were in Las Vegas, I was privileged to teach five years of early morning seminary and then seven years of adult religion. And actually, five of those years overlapped with the seminary, so I taught the same course of study, and many of the parents in the adult religion class were also parents of children who were in seminary, so it was nice that they were having the same course of study. But after I was called as Relief Society president and stepped back from seminary teaching, and then I had one more year of adult religion, and I was able to choose my own curriculum, and I chose the curriculum of the presidents of the church. So we were able in that semester to study Joseph Smith through Gordon B. Hinckley, who was the prophet at the time. And it was such a wonderful experience to be able to kind of deep dive into their lives more than I had before, and to get to know them better. And my love for them grew incredibly. I'm with my gratitude for them just really, really expanded. And of course, they're all heroes of mine. And I think it's wonderful that we can have access to these heroes in our own life because the information is so readily available. Joseph F. Smith, one of those heroes. And I thought, since we're talking about the vision of the redemption of the dead, and because it's unusual that this section was added so much later than the rest of the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, that it would be kind of wonderful to celebrate his life a little bit and get to know this dear man and why this revelation is so tender. Now, think about it. He's going to have a vision of the redemption of the dead. And he had a lot of experience with death. He lost his father at five, his mother before he was 14. He lost 10 of his own children. Certainly, he experienced death in many ways on his mission and all through his church service and opportunities that he had. This man, you know, as he became prophet of the church, was attacked personally, interestingly, mostly by the Salt Lake Tribune, <laughs> that did political cartoons of him almost every day that were drawn in a spirit, it says, of wicked and malicious vilification. So he was attacked from being a practitioner of polygamy, but from everything else too, for all kinds of principles that he taught. Anyway, it was, but he did not ever write a letter in his own defense to the Tribune. He, he didn't think it worth his time to try to fight that battle. So here it was every day almost, but he... Instead, warned us of this, there are at least three dangers that threaten the church within, and the authorities need to awaken to the fact that the people should be warned unceasingly against them. And you know, we are, we are warned again and again of these things. So our prophets are doing such a wonderful job. But think of this, Joseph F. Smith saying, it's the dangers from within that are the problem, not the dangers from outside. As the Lord says again and again in these revelations, fear not your enemies. I will deal with them in mine own due time, right? I mean, they might be filling the wrath of or the cup of wrath, but don't worry about it. In the right time, they'll be dealt with. In the meantime, let's look to ourselves and not think that all is well in Zion. So here they are. As I see these, they are one flattery of prominent men in the world. Boy, that's interesting. Flattery of prominent men in the world. That's happening a lot less than it used to. So we might be coming out of that one as we become less and less popular in a world that has gone mad. Two, false educational ideas. Wow, is that relevant or what? That we should beware of false educational ideas within, within our own company. Like, what are our children learning in schools? Are we aware? Are we countering that with teaching them the rest of the story if necessary? I'm not saying they don't learn good things in school, but we have to watch it because sometimes that happens more than other times. And sometimes there are there are things that are taught that are not correct or consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Political correctness doesn't jive well with a lot of gospel principles, and we need to make sure that we don't yield our children over to false educational ideas or ourselves, because it's not just our children that are vulnerable. Look at how many people who are adults have fallen for philosophies of the world, sometimes mingled with scriptures and sometimes not. 
The third is sexual impurity. He goes on, the third subject mentioned, personal purity, is perhaps of greater importance than either of the other two. And look at the plague of pornography. Of course, all kinds of sexual activity that is prohibited by the Lord is rampant. We've got sexting going on in the schools. We've got, you know, amongst our youth, we have all kinds of aggressive pornographic images or whatever. I mean, you can hardly go to the mall without seeing living porn. When, when kids don't dress appropriately and, and the standards have dropped all over the place. I remember talking to, a, well, over the years, many good men who are trying to be clean and sober and rid themselves of any attachment to pornography. And it breaks my heart to hear them say, I understand that I'm responsible for where my eyes go and what I allow to stay in my mind. But why does it have to be so hard at church? I'm going to talk about that more in some extra content sometime when I talk about modesty. So I'm going to leave it there. But I hope you'll think about that and talk to your daughters about that. Men are responsible for what they think and do, of course. Everybody is responsible for their own behavior. But why are we not making it a little easier? Anyway, so going on, that third subject mentioned is perhaps of greater importance than either of the other two. But the others are important too. We believe in one standard of morality for men and women. No double standards in the church or in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God expects both his sons and his daughters to be morally pure. If purity of life is neglected, all other dangers set in upon us like the rivers of waters when the floodgates are opened. Big warning there. So in November of 1918, President Smith was ill. Elderly, frail, and declining rapidly, he had spent much of the year at home, unable to maintain the demanding pace that characterized most of his life. And can you imagine from driving a team of oxen when he was not even eight? to this age where he was almost 80. His age-related ailments were compounded by heavy grief. In January, like again, look at the exposure to death, his beloved eldest son, Elder Hiram M. Smith, had died suddenly of a ruptured appendix. My soul is rent. My heart is broken. Oh, God, help me, President Smith exclaimed at the death of his son. But the blows kept coming. In February, a young son-in-law died after an accidental fall. And in September... Hiram's wife, Ida, died just a few days after giving birth, leaving five orphaned children from that wife. Meanwhile, the Great War, meaning World War I, was dragging to a close, leaving unimaginable carnage and devastation in its wake. And a worldwide influenza pandemic, does that ring a bell? This was the Spanish flu, of course, was claiming millions of victims. For President Smith, it was a time of deeply personal pain amid much global suffering. He wasn't expected to appear at the October Conference of 1918. And he did attend and said this, I will not, I dare not attempt to enter upon many things that are resting upon my mind this morning. And I shall postpone until some future time, the Lord being willing, my attempt to tell you some of the things that are in my mind and that dwell in my heart. I have not lived alone these five months. He's not talking about earthly company. Is that an amazing statement? I have not lived alone these five months. I have dwelt in the spirit of prayer, of supplication, of faith and of determination, and I have had my communication with the Spirit of the Lord continuously. Well, there's something to strive for. The day before he spoke those words in conference, he had received the vision that is recorded in section 138. And then 10 days after general conference, he dictated this vision to his son, Joseph Fielding Smith who later became a prophet in his own right, of course. Two weeks later, Joseph F. Smith read the text to the first president and the Quorum of the Twelve at their weekly meeting in the temple, which they continued to have. Two weeks after that, on November 19th of 1918, President Joseph F. Smith died. Let's look at some of these amazing words. Again, this man was acquainted with death. He had suffered personal loss almost from the beginning of his life, Right up to the end of his life, people who were very dear and close to him were taken from him, and yet he was true to the faith. You know, I forgot to tell a story. Let me throw this in here. Many of you have heard it, I'm sure. But when he was returning from his first mission to Hawaii at the age of, I think, 18, or possibly he was already 19, and of course, they, you know, the ship took him into the California coast, and then they had to travel overland to Salt Lake City. And he was with a group of other travelers over a campfire, around a campfire one night. And there was a rough group that was there, some, you know, kind of rough and rowdy guys, men, who were talking about Mormons. And they were saying, you know, I'd just as soon shoot one as look at one. 
and other members of the company that knew that Joseph Smith and a couple of his traveling companions were members of the church kind of looked nervously in their direction. So this man who had spoken this, you know, pretty strong statement about I'd rather shoot one than look at one, looked at Joseph F. Smith and said, are you one of those Mormons? Now, again, you know, that man would have been significantly older than he was. He was no more than 19 at the most. And he stood up and looked him right in the eye and he said, yes, siree, true blue, dyed in the wool through and through. I had my kids memorize that because I thought it was so beautiful. Yes, siree, true blue, dyed in the wool through and through. And the man, you know, looked at him and shook his hand and said, I'm really glad to meet an honest man or words to that effect and left him alone and they departed company in the morning. So even right there where basically, you know, he could have been facing some, some pretty violent response, maybe even murder, but would not deny his membership in the kingdom of God. So much had been sacrificed already by his family. So much. His uncle, his own father, his mother had died in the faith and he wasn't going to let them down or let himself down or let his God down. May we all grow to that stature so here's this beautiful vision. And it's, it's significant to look at some of these words. This is the third day of October in the year 1918. I sat in my room and then look at these key phrase, pondering over the scriptures, not just reading them, pondering over them. And I hope that we take time. Another time in extra content, we'll talk about meditation. But right now, this is a kind of meditative approach to the scriptures where he's not just reading to check off another day, but he's thinking about what he's read and all the things that he's read over a lifetime of scriptural study and reflecting, verse 2, upon the great atoning sacrifice made by the Son of God for the redemption of the world and the great, verse 3, and wonderful love made manifest by the Father and the Son in the coming of the Redeemer into the world for that through his atonement and by obedience, that's always the condition, to the principles of the gospel, mankind might be saved. Verse 5, while I was thus engaged, so he's pondering all of this, my mind reverted to the writings of the Apostle Peter, to the primitive saints scattered all through those different areas. Now, where they were preaching after the crucifixion of the Lord. Now, let me just point out that he couldn't have had those verses or those words from Peter come to his mind had he not been somewhat familiar with them, probably very familiar with them. Now, why are we asked to study the scriptures? Why are we asked to continually read the Book of Mormon and to go over and over again these wonderful, wonderful words of God? Because as they become familiar, we can think about them better and we can allow the Spirit to work in our minds as we ponder over these things and bring to our mind new ideas, new connections, new understanding, revelation. That's what happens here. Verse 6, so after thinking about these words of Peter, he says, I opened my Bible and read these chapters of Peter. And as I read, I was greatly impressed. Okay, knowing that like he'd been pondering these things, and this had been brought to his mind about the words of Peter. And now the Lord is working in him to impress him greatly more than I had ever been before with the following passages, more than he'd ever been before, meaning that he had read these many, many times. And I hope we've all had that experience where we're reading something that we've read many times before. Maybe it's the Book of Mormon, whatever verse of scripture. And we're looking like, wow, who put that in there? Because I've read this several times, but I never really saw that before, or I didn't really recognize what it meant. And that's the spirit working upon us. And of course, the scriptures are just such a marvelous work, that true word of God, that it has layers. <laughs> and as we progress in our life and experience in righteousness, more and more light can be given to us. We notice new things because we've experienced new things or grown in our faith or understanding. Anyway, it's a wonderful, wonderful growing process that light grows upon light. So here he is greatly impressed more than ever before with the following passages. And this is about talking about how after Christ's crucifixion in verse 8, then he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Verse 9, which sometimes were disobedience or sorry, were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. So he's even these spirits who were so wicked that the Lord allowed them to be destroyed by flood. He designated that they be destroyed by flood and wiped off the face of the earth. So that's pretty wicked. And, and Peter says that that's where Christ went to preach the gospel, or at least including those people. 
In verse 10, for for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God's spirit. Anyway, going on, as I pondered, verse 11, over these things which are written. Again, he's thinking about it. He's meditating. He's giving God a chance to enlighten his mind. The eyes of my understanding were opened. There it is. That's the revelation. And the spirit of the Lord rested upon me, and I saw the hosts of the dead, both small and great. Here is a man acquainted with death. And it makes perfect sense to me that God gave him this vision. How receptive must he have been as he took the time to ponder over these things that he had read again and again. And here they are gathered, verse 12, and you see an innumerable company of the spirits of the just who had been faithful in the testimony of Jesus. And then in verse 14, all these had departed the mortal life firm in the hope of a glorious resurrection. And they were filled with joy and gladness. In verse 15, going on, verse 18. While this vast multitude waited and conversed, rejoicing in the hour of their deliverance, the Son of God appeared declaring liberty to the captives who had been faithful. And there he preached to them the everlasting gospel, the doctrine of resurrection and the redemption of mankind from the fall and from individual sins on conditions of repentance, but unto the wicked he did not go. So he's already talked to the righteous who are sealed up to the celestial kingdom. Now he's talking to those who are still captives. Those are the ones who are just people, but who didn't have the gospel. So they're they're captive to a kind of holding place that is part of spirit prison, but not hell. We've talked about that before. And he did not go to the wicked. Joseph F. Smith is seeing that Christ himself did not go to the wicked. And among the ungodly and the unrepentant who had defiled themselves while in the flesh, his voice was not raised. Neither the rebellious who rejected the testimonies and the warnings of the ancient prophets. Where these were, verse 22, darkness reigned, but among the righteous there was peace. And then let's go on. Verse 25, I marveled, for I understood that the Savior spent about three years in his ministry among the Jews and those of the house of Israel. And he talks about how even notwithstanding his mighty works in this verse and miracles and proclamation of the truth in great power and authority, there were but few who hearkened to his voice. So he spends three years in a ministry to the Jews who are of the house of Israel and should have known better in some respects. And they hardly listened. So many of them rejected him, right? But in verse 27, what he's wondering about and marveling is that Christ's ministry amongst those who were dead was limited to the brief time intervening the crucifixion and his resurrection. So he had three years with the house of Israel in Judea when he came to walk and talk to them on the earth and minister to them, but he only had three days in the world of spirits. So he's like, how how was he going to do this? How was he? He hardly was successful in, in preaching the gospel to the Jews. I mean, he was successful in all the ways he needed to be because he completed his mission to perfect fulfillment. But as far as like teaching them all the gospel, he didn't get a, he didn't have the time in three years to really penetrate their stubbornness or teach them all anyway. In three days, how did he do this in the spirit world? And then as I wondered, verse 28, the words of Peter came to him again. And his eyes were open. Verse 29, my understanding quickened and I perceived that the Lord went not in person among the wicked and the disobedient. But behold, from among the righteous, this is verse 30, he organized his forces and appointed messengers clothed with power and authority and commissioned them to go forth and carry the light of the gospel to them that were in darkness. So isn't this fascinating that this comes just two sections later, although it's many years intervening, granted, but in section 136, the Lord instructs the Brigham Young to organize companies. And again, that's not for the first time. Moses had to delegate power. Joseph Smith had delegated power in Zion's camp. Again and again in the Lord's work, he uses delegation. And this is what happened in the spirit world. The Lord has an order to the kingdom. He has established that delegation is a part of that. So we see delegation throughout the history of the church, throughout the history of God's people, of Israel. And here we see that the Lord of course, did the same thing himself in the spirit world. In three days, he's not going to be able to go and preach to all the unrighteous and all the wicked or the rebellious. So he goes to the righteous and organizes companies. He delegates, you go and you are clothed with the right power and authority to go and be my emissaries to those who are in darkness. So they too 
can have light if they choose to receive it. It's also lovely here that as he goes on in verse 38 and then in verse 39, he talks about the, some of those righteous who were organized to do this, and that included the Ancient of Days, Father Adam himself and Mother Eve and many of her faithful daughters. Abel, the first martyr, his brother Seth, and it says again tenderly, one of the mighty ones who was in the express image of his father Adam. I think that's so tender. And in verse 41, no, anyway, there are many of the righteous that were given this delegated of power to take their companies into the spirit prison to teach to those who are in darkness, those who had rejected on this earth or were rebellious, whether or not the gospel was on the earth. Everybody had the light of Christ, and if they rejected it, were rebellious, they still get to hear the word of God. And everybody is going to have to bow the knee and confess Christ at the end so that they can participate even in the celestial kingdom. So this is a necessary qualification, and it's part of the work of the kingdom on both sides of the veil. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and those who will receive it can have the benefits to the extent that they receive it. Even those who are rebellious have to be taught, and then they can... Finally, in the day of resurrection, even if it's at the end, in, in the second resurrection, they can come forth having confessed God and knowing that Jesus is the Christ and enter into a celestial glory, which is a kingdom of glory where there is peace and happiness to the measure that they were willing to receive it. And it's going to be great for those because that's what they wanted. And well, those who wanted all of it can have all of it. Brothers and sisters, what a wonderful plan. How tender it is to me that this great man, Joseph F. Smith, was able to be the messenger of this information. How much he must have rejoiced. He was only six weeks away from crossing over the, the veil himself to be with his departed loved ones and to leave other loved ones here on this planet for a later reunion to come. It's a wonderful plan. God is good. Christ is our Savior and Redeemer and invites all and denies none. It is just up to us. What will we receive? How much are we willing to be his emissaries? How much are we willing to teach the gospel in our own homes and make sure that our children are not left to themselves? They do have their choices, but they don't need to be unlimited, <laughs> certainly when they're young. Again, topics for another day. Brothers and sisters, this is all a part of Building Zion. Let's get to it. My thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. As usual, always grateful. As we enter this holiday season, of course, I hope you've already had a great Thanksgiving, and I hope that our hearts are filled with gratitude for this wonderful work of Scripture, the Doctrine and Covenants, and for these amazing people who helped to bring it forth. And of course, for our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate at this wonderful time of year. Take care.